Let's open with a word of prayer. Almighty God, how awesome and amazing you are and how small our problems are before you. Heavenly Father, we read and know of your power and your might. We see it in the universe in all the way that the galaxies and the stars and the nebula all play out. We are so incredibly insignificant by comparison. It reminds us of how undeserving of your kindness and your generosity and your love. Your love is so great. It is greater than all the heavens, Lord. And we are so undeserving. Heavenly Father, we understand the relationship, the love that you have for us. Conceptually, we understand that, but deep down, we do not have anything of a comprehension of how great you are. Our failure and our sin drag us down and we fail to look upon you, Lord. Heavenly Father, we ask you to come down this morning and be with us. Remind us. Remind us, Lord, of how far we fall short. Heavenly Father, this day I also lift up to you the people of Afghanistan. How great is their need for you and how little of you do they see in the world. Heavenly Father, give us wisdom to heed the words of your prophet Isaiah and to understand. Give us discernment, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We've been talking about the kingdom of Judah in chaos over the coming of the huge army, the Assyrians, the impact of this coming horde on the people. I talked a little bit about this to my my CG this week, watching what was happening to Kabul. And it was one of those things where I I couldn't bring myself to turn the TV off. And I need to explain. I was in a not dissimilar event to what we've been talking about here. Jerusalem before the Assyrians and the Afghans in Kabul. The story of the American crew of that C-17 who, realizing none of the Americans that were to be evacuated were at the airport, but there were thousands of Afghans who were trying to flee. So this, I found out later that there were, it was a crew of five people, made an instant decision to load their airplane up. Now the aircraft is certified to carry 334 people. The transcript between the crew to the tower as they were taking off came out. The tower asked the crew how many were aboard. 
and the crew responded about 800. The tower made them repeat it because they couldn't understand what the number was. And I can't tell you what the tower said in response, but they closed with, wow, oh wow. It turns out that they had 823 passengers on board, and they flew them to Qatar, and those 823 Afghans are now in a refugee camp in Qatar. No action was taken against the aircraft crew for having violated the, the limits of the aircraft. They had the aircraft checked out in Qatar and everything was fine. And the aircraft and the crew are flying in and out of Kabul once again. In 1975, my family moved to Australia. My dad's job took us there. And so dad went down and, and started his new job. My mom, my brother, and I stopped off in Japan for a couple of weeks to visit family. So as we were leaving Japan in order to fly down to Australia where my dad was, by the way, he, he lived in a place that, um, we were living in a place that, it's a little bit like Rosamond or Shoshone outside of Death Valley. In one way, it was much worse. Um, the nearest city, um, the nearest town to us was 314 miles to the north. And the nearest city that was bigger than we were was 1,200 miles away. It was an interesting place to live. Um, when we got there, there were about 8,000 people in town that, that lived there. Um, so we stopped off in Japan for a couple of weeks, and then we were going to fly down to Australia. So the flight left Tokyo, and this is October 1975, by the way, and we had a layover in Jakarta, Indonesia. So in August, the country of Portugal withdrew from Timor, and Timor is a part of the Indonesian island. And Indonesia, the country, decided this was an opportune time to take over this part of the island. And so there was a, a civil war broke out. And so while the Indonesian army was off trying to take over this Portuguese colony that was off to the, the east of where they were, the communist rebels in Indonesia decided it was a good time to launch an attack. So we're flying into Jakarta, and there's this low, low clouds over the airport. We drop out of the clouds and we land on the, on the runway. And there is a lot of thunder going on across the, the airport. And we were thinking that it was a, a thunderstorm. It turns out it was not a thunderstorm. The hills off on the right were where the rebels were, and the government forces were in the parking lot of the airport, in the parking structure, and they were shelling the rebels, and the rebels were mortaring back across the airport. 
And this is the airport that we're, we've just landed at. We were on the ground for eight hours. That was it. And we finally got enough fuel for the aircraft that we could get out. We could not get to Sydney, though. We couldn't get enough fuel in order to do that. So um, after eight and a half hours on the ground, and, and they packed that plane, um, we were three deep in every seat. And uh, it turns out that we couldn't make it on to Sydney. So we ended up flying to China. And so here are these three Americans with our blue passports going through immigration at China. And um, we were pushed through immigration um, by the barrel of an automatic weapon. And it took us many hours to finally be able to purchase tickets from Hong Kong to Sydney. Um, So what was supposed to be a two and a half hour layover in Jakarta in order to refuel and turned into two and a half days trying to get out of China. And um, I was 15, by the way. So all these airport scenes are happening in Kabul, right? I know exactly what those people are going through. I know exactly what it feels like to be there, to have people who don't understand your language, who won't let you in. I know exactly what it was. Your refugees running to go anywhere but where you are. The images of mothers handing babies and children over concrete walls to American soldiers to be taken out of the country. We're reading of Jerusalem doing this exact thing. We all need to pray for Afghanistan. We're going to finish off chapter 37 of Isaiah this week. One last thing I need to say here. Ten months after this event happens, I'm in a new church down there. And the pastor we have, he was my best friend's dad, by the way, um, Baptist Church in Alice Springs, Australia. Um, and uh, he was a very thoughtful man but he could assemble very carefully the argument of the gospel. And so 10 months after this event happens, I get down on my knees and I pray the prayer and Jesus saves me. And that's the first time that I know that I am saved. was after this event. God puts you in those places so that you understand, so that you know. Okay, we're going to finish off chapter 37 of Isaiah this week. We're going through the last half, verses 21 to 38. Chapter 37, verses 21 to 38. 
We're approaching the end of a long prose section of Isaiah here. We're going to hear today what Isaiah says from God, and then what happens to the Assyrians, and ultimately what happens to Sennacherib, the emperor of the Assyrian Empire. Recall that the Assyrians owned this huge crescent swath through the Middle East, from the Euphrates and Tigris River, eastern Turkey, all the way down Lebanon, the only th and all the way down into Egypt and down to the Sudan. And the only thing that the Assyrians don't own in this entire swath here is this little tiny piece called Judah. And the Jews are like this thorn in their side. And so Sennacherib wants to step on them like they're a bug and take care of this problem. And we're in this last part of the oracle of the Assyrians. And recall, Hezekiah, the king of Judah, is one of the really righteous kings of Judah. Okay, let's go ahead and start. This is verse 21. We're going to read verse 21 through the first half of verse 22. And this is Sennacherib's fall. Then Isaiah, the son of Amoz, sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, because you have prayed to me concerning Sennacherib, king of Assyria, this is the word that the Lord has spoken concerning him. So right here, Isaiah pronounces he is speaking the words of God. And he does so in the most powerful and de declarative way that he can. The title he uses here for God is the personal name of God. We might get an inkling of this here if I were to say, this is what it says. Thus says, I am the God of Israel. Okay? And God speaks to Hezekiah. And God assures Hezekiah with a message concerning Sennacherib. So the second half of verse 22 through 23. She despises you. She scorns you, the virgin daughter of Zion. She wags her head behind you, the daughter of Jerusalem. Whom have you mocked and reviled? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes to the heights? Against the Holy One of Israel. Now, I have to admit, at this point, I had this little tiny bit of an epiphany about this passage. She despises the Assyrians. God calls the people of God as his own, as his young daughter. And the Assyrians have disrespected God's daughter. The Assyrians have mocked and reviled God's own daughter, okay? I am a dad, though I do not have a daughter, but I have a granddaughter, and I can tell you nobody messes with my granddaughter, right? I know what you dads who have daughters go through now. I know what that looks like. I know what that feels like. It's not the same with boys, you know? 
They get out of line. You... No one messes with my granddaughter. Lamentations 2.10. Lamentations 2.10. The elders of the daughter of Zion sit on the ground in silence. They have thrown dust on their heads and put on sackcloth. The young women of Jerusalem have bowed their heads to the ground. Amos 5, 1 and 2. Amos 5, 1 and 2. Hear this word that I take up over you in lamentation, O house of Israel. Fallen no more to rise is the virgin Israel, forsaken on her land with none to raise her up. This is referring to the northern kingdom of Israel, which would become Samaria. I now understand every time the Bible makes reference to the daughter, this is actually the daughter of God. Verses 24 and 25. By your servants you have mocked the Lord, and you have said, With my many chariots I have gone up the heights of the mountains to the far recesses of Lebanon to cut down its tallest cedars, its choicest cypresses, to come to its remotest heights to find the fruitful forest. And I dug wells and I drank waters to dry up with the sole of my foot all the streams of Egypt. Here we know that God is speaking directly to Sennacherib. God makes reference to the Assyrian envoys who spoke to Israel. The Assyrians are so proud of themselves with their strong army, overcoming the kingdoms of the mountains and the forests of Lebanon and even to the rivers of Egypt. How mighty are the Assyrians! Notice the similarity to a passage that we saw before. This is Isaiah 14, 12 to 14. Isaiah 14, 12 to 14. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. You can imagine the emperor of Assyria saying this about himself. Verse 26 and 27. God is responding. Have you not heard that I determined it long ago? I planned from days of old what I now bring to pass, that you should make fortified cities crash into heaps of ruins, with their inhabitants shorn of strength, and are dismayed and confounded. They have become like the plants of the field, like tender grass, like the grass on the housetops, blighted before it is grown. God says, didn't you know that I had planned this all long ago? All of this comes to pass as my plan, that you would conquer kingdoms and cities 
and destroy them, leaving ruins in your wake. These are like the grass of the field. The comment about the grass of the rooftops. In the Middle East at this time, they would make flat roofs, and then they would scatter dirt on top of it in order to make it waterproof. And to keep the roof cool in the summer and warm in the winter, they would plant grass. And the grass would act like air conditioning for the place because of the moisture that it had. And that would keep the roof cool in the summer. And then it would insulate the house in the wintertime. And that's why the grass would be grown on the roof. The grass made living in the buildings comfortable, comfort that the people did not now have. Verses 28 and 29. God continues. I know you're sitting down and you're going out and you're coming in and you're raging against me because you have raged against me and your complacency has come to my ears. I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth. I will turn you back on the way by which you came. Here in verses 28 and 29, God knows. He knows when all go out. And he knows when we all come back. He knows when we neglect him. And when Sennacherib swears against him. The Assyrians would bind the hands of their victims, then pierce their noses and put a, no a rope through the hole. And likewise, they would bind a stick across the mouth and ha have a lead rope on it. All this made the victims very compliant, very easy to lead around. And it breaks the will of the victims from resisting. 2 Kings 19.28 2 Kings 19, verse 28 Because you have raged against me and your complacency has come to my ears, I will put a hook in your nose and a bit in your mouth, and I will turn you back by the way which you came. Verses 30 and 32, 30 through 32. And this shall be the sign for you. This year you shall eat what grows of itself, and the second year what springs from that. Then in the third year sow and reap, and plant vineyards, and eat their fruit. And the surviving remnant of the house of Judah shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward. For out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant, and out of Mount Zion a band of survivors. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. God promises to restore his people, to give them peace. Recall what the Rabshakeh had promised them. Isaiah 36, 16. Isaiah 36, 16. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, make your peace with me, come out to me. Then each one of you will eat of his own vine, and each one of you his own fig tree, and each one of you will drink the water of his own cistern. What is happening here is God's faithfulness in working out his plan 
in his time. This restoration begins in 701 BC and continues even to this day. As all who believe in Jesus as Savior are grafted into God's vine. John 15, 1 through 8. John 15, 1 through 8. I am the true vine. Jesus is speaking here. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burn. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Verses 33 to 35. Verses 33 to 35. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city or shoot an arrow there or come before it with a shield or cast up a siege mound against it. By the way that he came, by the same he shall return, and he shall not come into the city, declares the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it, for my own sake and for the sake of my servant, David. So here we have the promise of the Lord. And God says that the king of Assyria shall not set foot in Jerusalem. I'm not sure that all the people understood or even believed it. I know that Isaiah did, and I suspect that Hezekiah did as well. We continue on. Verses 36 to 37. And the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived at Nineveh. So here in verses 36 and 37, God strikes down 185,000 of the Assyrians in the Assyrian army. There is a Jewish tradition that uses the word pestilence here. So pestilence is the bubonic plague. 
It doesn't matter whether God destroys a huge swath of the Assyrian army using the plague or if God just decides to do it by his own hand. God makes it happen either way. And because of this, Sennacherib turns around and he goes back to Nineveh, taking his army with him. Verse 38. And as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his god, Adramelech and Sherezer, his sons, struck him down with the sword. And after they escaped into the land of Ararat, Esharhaddon, his son, reigned in his place. So many years later, about 20 years later, Sennacherib goes up to his temple to worship his false god, Nisroch. And there, Ardo Musli, transliterated as Adrimelech here, and his younger brother, Sherezer, conspire and murder their father. But they did not have the support of the people or the army. And so they had to flee, and they flee to the, the hills of Ararat. And the youngest son, Esarhaddon, ends up ruling in Sennacherib's place. This story, by the way, gets repeated in multiple places at multiple times. It's actually found on a stella, which is a, a large rock that has characters carved in it that's in Babylon. And it actually tells this story of what happens to Sennacherib. And that ends our passage today. The end of chapter 37. So the army of the Assyrians does not enter Jerusalem. God saves his people and saves Judah. Next week, there's a story about Hezekiah and what happens after this. There's another event here where Hezekiah and God have this interaction and God helps out Hezekiah once again. And it's a great story. And uh, I look forward to hearing how Bill tells it. it. It should be a really good one. Can you see here God talking about not just an earthly redemption, but that this is actually an example of a heavenly redemption as well? And that... Isaiah is actually talking to us also to put our faith in God, that we aren't looking to God when we should be or trusting God the way we should. There's God's promise there in the end. Do we hear what Isaiah is saying? Can you see what God is trying to do here? You can see the imprint of Jesus there waiting above all of it, waiting to save all of God's people. Jesus is out there calling to us. Jesus had to come down from heaven, from his throne, on the right hand of God. And he lives 
an incredibly humble life while he is here. And then he walks up on top of that mountain carrying all of our sin. Tortured, neglected, and beaten. And he dies in our place so that we don't have to. So that we can spend eternity with him and his father. That promise is here. God is the only one who can save. Jesus is there calling to us. Isaiah is doing his best here to point us back to God. He's saying, look to Jesus. Look to God. Isaiah is telling us to change the way we live in the world. Isaiah wants us to be more like Jesus. How are we doing? This week really reminded me about how incredibly bad off the world is. Because you can see it in what's going on. I need to add here, there were a couple of news crews that were on the ground in Kabul. And I could not believe how incredibly courageous those people were. I know they're doing it for the wrong reasons. But it was amazing to see. You could see God's hand in those people, even if they don't realize that's what they're doing. You could see it. Thinking about the chaos and the tumult of this world and the faith that God gives to Isaiah and how Isaiah displays his hold to the anchor and how this all serves God's righteousness. Ultimately, what's going on today in Afghanistan serves God's righteousness as well. We don't understand it. Maybe someday we will. God's greatness will be there for all to see on the day of the Lord. And we will all witness his greatness and his splendor on that day. Let me pray. Almighty God, how great you are and how insignificant we are. Heavenly Father, your words have been handed down through all these ages, originally written down by Isaiah and handed down all through these years for us to have today. Lord, we have been unfaithful. We keep trying to save ourselves. We look to Egypt. We look to the world. We keep trying to smooth out Jesus. You want us to hear you in Isaiah's words here. And all this time when we are trying to crawl out of your hand, you continue to hold us and cover us 
and you lovingly guide us and care for us. Heavenly Father, we ask you to hide Isaiah's words in our hearts. We read these words. Heavenly Father, hide your word deep down in our hearts. Write your words on the inside of us. Give us the lessons we must learn, the hard ones and the easy ones, the lessons that only come from you. Guide us in your perfect path, Lord. Your plan of redemption is so perfect. Jesus, you died in our place to redeem us, to save us. Jesus, you are so amazing. You are so beautiful, and we love you. We bless you and we honor you. And we praise the name above all names, the name of Jesus. Amen.